Let's pray. God, first of all, this morning, I want to lift up a local official. I want to lift, uh, pray for Jeff Daly, who's on our city council here in Greenville. Lord, we want to pray for, um, first of all, we pray that if he doesn't know you, that he will come to know you and that you can, um, or that you will use him for your own glory as a believer on city council. Uh, if, he's, if he's not a believer, Lord, we pray for those who are believers on the council or who may be around Jeff or work with Jeff that can be salty and bright and out loud with their faith so that you might uh, draw him to you through the work of the Son. Lord, we, uh, we pray for our council as a whole, not just for Jeff, but we pray that they will um, be stewards of the authority that you've given them so that the gospel can be furthered in Greenville and so that your great commission uh, can be fulfilled and the good news can go forth and we can enjoy an environment of peace um, and freedom to worship and enjoy you out loud. Lord, also this morning, I want to pray for Lance and Sarah Keeling and their family uh, down in Teopisca. Lord, uh, I want to pray for Lance, Lance's health and the health of the boys uh, dealing with uh, typhoid and uh, just some really severe sickness. Lord, we pray that you will heal them, uh, that you will restore their bodies to health so that they can serve you out loud. I pray that as they're going through this sickness that they will look to you, that they'll grow more dependent on you, that others that they are reaching out to and hoping to engage in their community will see what faith looks like, even in trial and especially in trial. I pray for Sarah as she sort of cares for the family uh, while they're sick and just pray that you'll give her endurance. I pray that this family will worship in the mess right now and that they will uh, be a salty, bright, and aromatic instrument for your glory in Teopisca, Mexico. Lord, as far as we go in these next few minutes, I just counted a sweet privilege to gather this morning and to enjoy you and engage you on the first day of this new year. Lord, in regards to the preaching event itself, I pray that you will, really, I pray that you will guard me from being smooth. I pray maybe even for sloppy transitions, fumbling words. Lord, I pray that whatever could potentially result in anything getting in the way of this message, that you'll remove it, even if something is too good. Lord, on the other end, I pray that it's not a mess. I pray that you will speak clearly to your people this morning that some serious dots will be connected. That we'll see a big story with a big Savior and big news that just changes the way we live and the way we view our world, the way we view this next year. Count it a sweet privilege to enjoy you and engage you this morning. Pray that you'll really just have your way with us in these next few minutes. Christ's name we pray. Amen. We are in Hebrews chapter 2. I'm going to read our passage and then I'm going to give you, I want to give you kind of a map and a plan for the morning. We're going to read our passage, verses 5 through 9 is where we're going to be these next couple of weeks. I want to orient you to this passage. I was thinking this week that Someone, you know, you may travel or you may be in a 
passenger seat of the car or somebody hand you a map or you travel and someone gives you a map as you get off a subway or something and you sort of have to figure way, your way out of there. You figure out where you are. You figure out where you're going. You have to orient the map. What I want to do is orient you this morning to this text. And then we're going to go where it takes us in the next few minutes after the orientation. I want to, from that point, go to a little bit of background. And then we're going to unpack the major point of this text. And then we're going to look at implications and one application. So it sounds complicated. It's not complicated, though. All right? Let me start with our passage. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 5. Now, it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You have made him a little lower, or for a little while, lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Now, orientation. I'm going to get you kind of acquainted with this map. This passage is moving from what has been exhortation to moving back into exposition. That's a mix of what the book of Hebrews is. Exhortation and exposition. And usually in the order of exposition and then exhortation. Exposition would be sort of revealing some important truth and how you should respond to it is the exhortation. The first four verses of chapter 2 have been exhortation pointing back to the first chapter of the book of Hebrews. So now the Hebrews preacher is moving back into exposition, exposing truth, and there's a future exhortation that he'll be taking us to. I'm going to take us to an exhortation, an intermediate one, at the end of the sermon this morning. But we're moving back into exposition. The paragraph begins with the word now. And this is a use by the Hebrews writer that's indicating a new paragraph, a new thought. But it's not completely disconnected from where he's been. It's moving back to where he's been before he started chapter 2 to the issue of Christ's relative angels. And specifically, Christ's superiority over angels. He's moving back into that argument or that um, development here in these next few verses. The Hellenistic Jews had a very high view of angels. So he's speaking to people who would have thought very much of angels and he's saying Christ is better. So we sort of spent some time acquainting ourselves with the view of angels so that we could climb into the point that he's making. Now, the time frame that he's speaking of here in verse 5, he says, it's not to angels that God subjected the world to come. The world to come is what he's speaking of there. He's not speaking of this present world or the past world before Christ. He's speaking of what is called in sort of academic circles, the eschaton, the return of Christ, the reign and rule of Christ on earth in what we will know as a new heavens and a new earth. 
When someone dies right now, they go to sort of an intermediate place that Christ referred to as the thief on the crosses next to him, says, you're going to be with me in paradise? Our version of heaven right now would be paradise, but that's not where we're going to spend eternity. We're going to spend eternity on a new earth and a new heavens, and that's what's being spoken of right here. It was not to angels that God subjected the world to come. We need to realize we are looking forward. Now, he goes on to say, it has been testified somewhere. First of all, I just have to say that I kind of enjoyed the fact that he couldn't remember exactly where. It helps me sometimes to realize that even the Hebrews preacher couldn't. Now, where was that? I couldn't remember where exactly that was said. Now, it was Psalm chapter 8 where we spent last week. It's the central passage or the central teaching in this passage is going back and grabbing one of David's psalms, Psalm chapter 8. It's the central quote. What is man that you're mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? If you were here last week, you remember that's the apex or the summit of the mountain. That's that central question of the chiastic design that's taking you to the central issue of Psalm number 8. What is man that you're mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? You've made him a little lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Last week, we realized that this psalm is about marvel at the shocking role that man has of dominion. God created this earth, and with those same hands that shape the heavens, he points at man and he says, I'm putting you in charge. David, the psalmist in Psalm number 8, is marveling at that reality that majesty would stoop so low to put man in charge of his creation. Last week, we sort of bumped into some of these things that we're going to consider today, but I want you to know before we really climb into it that Psalm number 8 has some application to every man, even unbelievers. Even unbelievers can exercise some dominion over their little bitty micro-earth. They may cut their grass. They may train their dog to sit. That's exercising dominion. It has some application to every single man. But Psalm number 8 has much application, and I will say actually tremendous application for those who are in Christ. And it has perfect and complete application to Christ himself. That's where we're going to go today. Now, background. Two things I want you to consider before we really unpack the central meaning of this text. First thing, man has had dominion problems since the very beginning. Turn to Genesis chapter 1. Man has had dominion problems since the very beginning. I'm going to show you a little bit of a progression in the book of Genesis that's going to acquaint you with our problem. We touched on this a little bit last week, but we didn't really flesh it out. Chapter 1, verse 28, is an important passage in our Bibles. It introduces something that's called the cultural mandate. You're going to hear that a few times this morning. The cultural mandate. God makes man and woman, and he looks to man and woman, and he says, here's what I want you to do. It's an important passage. Listen to it. And God blessed them, that's man and woman, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, 
and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant-yielding seed that's on the face of the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit, you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, He sees, too, this mandate that he's given man. And he says, behold, it was very good. It's the only day that he says, now this is very good. Every other day but one is, it is good. And this one he says, it is very good. This is God's design for man, and it's a very good design. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Essentially, the instructions that are given to man is to take what I've given you, subdue what I've given you, exercise dominion over what I've given you, tend the garden, name the critters. That's a picture of dominion. They're marching by one by one. That's a warthog. That's a pig. He's naming them with all kind of creative names, exercising dominion. God has essentially said to man, I'm putting you in charge, and he says, This is very good. Now, the problem Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the, heel, of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, let me just tell you, she's not even hungry. That's going to come into focus later. She took of its fruit and ate. And she hands it to her husband, who's also not hungry, who was with her and he ate. And then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. This is the moment in the human story when this scandalous dominion is damaged forevermore. He's given man dominion. He says it's very good. And man right here, days old, some believe, this is just days later, squanders dominion and damages dominion forevermore. And then pay attention to this. Angels are given a unique role at this point. Look at the end of chapter 3, beginning in verse 22. The Lord God said, Behold, the man's become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed 
cherubim, and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Dominion here is damaged, and angelic beings, pay attention, are placed as guards at the entrance to the garden that God had given man. This is all going to come together later. Some serious dots connected this morning. From this point on, as a result of dominion squandered, dominion damaged, we could say design damaged as well, earth fights back. Thorns and thistles, right? For those of you who work in your yard, who give a garden a go, you know the deal with thorns and thistles. They fight back. It's one step forward, two steps back. That's the way our world works since the fall. Thorns and thistles in an earth that fights back. Animals rebel. Even a good dog can bite. But those are the domesticated ones. Most animals would love to have you for dinner in our world. Animals fight back the animals that man named in the first place. And then our bodies fight back as well. They decay. Knees, anybody have bad knees? Anybody have bad back, bad hip, bad shoulders? Anybody get tired, fatigued? Anybody get sick? That's a result of dominion damaged. And there's stuff that you might think, I'm going to build this thing and it's going to last forever, but you stick around long enough and it won't last forever. You'll watch it become dilapidated. Insert whatever it is. Nothing lasts forever because dominion was damaged forevermore. Paint it, build it, put all kind of treatments on it in the world and stick around long enough and you're going to watch it fall apart because that's a result of what happened here in chapter 3. Checking accounts empty easier than they fill. That's a result of dominion damaged. Tires wear out. Shoes wear out. Clothes wear out. Houses wear out. A result of dominion damaged. Now, the chapters that unfold after chapter 3 prove that dominion is severely damaged. In the few chapters after chapter 3, we find Cain killing Abel. Killing him, not hurting him killing him, murdering him. We find also Cain building a wicked city and naming it not after God, not after his creator, but naming it after his son, Enoch. We also find in the early chapters, right after the fall of man, we find just a few generations later, Cain's offspring following his murdering lead, a guy named Lamech, murdering a young man and then writing a song about it. And singing it to his wives. Man is proving that we have some serious dominion issues. This guy Lamech lived 777 years, but at the age of 595, he fathers a young man, young boy named Noah. Now let's look at Noah's context. Look at Genesis chapter 6. Let's look at the context that Noah is born into just seven generations later after the creation of man. Chapter 6, verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Dominion is damaged 
design is broken. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I'm sorry that I've made them. Noah, though, found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt for all flesh. Hear it, all flesh, not just human flesh. Even the animals are out of sorts. Even the critter's design is broken in not, being, or not submitting to the dominion of man. All flesh has corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I've determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. And then he goes on and he gives the instructions for the ark. The context that Noah is born into is a context that proves that man has severe design and dominion problems. Even the critters are corrupt. All the earth and all flesh in it were thoroughly corrupt. So God does a recreation. I want you to pay attention to the pattern that unfolds in these next few examples that I give you. Water is a key pattern. You think about a woman that's about to give birth, what happens? Her water breaks. There's no uh, coincidence The new life is born through a watery ordeal. Watch what happens here. God's recreating through a watery ordeal in which eight persons are delivered. Noah, his wife, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and their wives. Eight persons climb on this ark, survive the watery ordeal through a new creation, and then God recasts the cultural mandate. Look at chapter 9, verse 1. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, it's going to be very familiar, hopefully, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth, upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground, and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. As I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. He recasts the cultural mandate in a new creation. And then within the next few chapters after that, man proves yet again that we have dominion and design problems. The earth is barely dry. I'm talking in the same chapter where this cultural mandate is recast, Noah is drunk and naked in his tent. And his boy Ham, which I think that's where Ham it up must have first come from, goes in there and mocks his daddy to his brothers. I mean, the earth is barely dry. And man is proving that we have design and dominion problems. Only two chapters later... Post-flood man. I'm talking the relatives of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth build a tower in Babel. 
Not for God's glory, not for God's fame, but what the passage says, to make a name for himself. Man is proving over, let's say it old-fashioned way, or and or again, like it's in a hymn, that we have some serious dominion and design problems and have ever since the fall. In the next few chapters, they're filled with things like kidnapping, war, wickedness of Sodom and Gomorrah that can't even be repeated. It's so vile. It goes on to even experience incest. This earth and everything in it proves over and over again that we have serious design and dominion issues. It doesn't really get any better through the rest of our Bibles. Man has serious and dominion problems. Dominion and design problems. There are patterns of this recreation and fall proving that man has a really what we would call an eternal problem except from something significant happening. Those aren't the only two examples. Here are a couple of briefer versions. Two chat, well, excuse me. A new people are created through a watery ordeal called the Red Sea. A new people called Israel through the watery ordeal of the Red Sea prove over the next 40 years that they too have dominion and design problems as they grumble, as they complain, as they dance around a fire like a bunch of hooligans worshiping a golden calf. We prove that we have serious design and dominion problems and then this people is recreated yet again with a brand new generation going through the watery ordeal of the Jordan into the promised land and proving yet again if you know the rest of the story the rest of our Bibles we have serious design and dominion problems this is the tragic story of humanity it's the tragic story of Israel it's the tragic story of the church Stick around the history of even an individual church for a while, and you're going to see glimpses of this. If you've been in church for any part of your life, significant part of life, you know what I'm talking about. Recreation and fall. And it should remind us every time we see it that we need something, a rescue from someone and something outside of us because we have an eternal problem. Dominion's damaged, and we have a desperate need for rescue. That's background. The second thing for background. The sermon is especially short once we get to the meat of it. Here's the second thing for background. Angels were placed in a special but temporary role after the fall of man. It started with cherubim being placed at the entrance to the garden. Later on, they show up all through our Old Testaments. They're there when Sodom is examined and surveyed for possible destruction. They're there to stay Abraham's hand from sacrificing his son Isaac. They're there announcing the covenant to Abraham. They're involved in, in a, a wife being found and identified for Isaac. They're saturated throughout this previous world as we know it post-fall. They're in dreams. They're in visions. You see them in person. You see them really written in the spiritual unseen realm. You see them all over the place, saturated our Old Testaments. The, Hip, the Hellenistic Jews actually believed that the angels were the messengers of the law to Moses on Sinai. They had a key role in the world as we read about it before us, but that's only by default. That was supposed to be our role. And it was given to angels 
they had a prominent and important role in the past world and they continue to have a role in this present world although I'm going to tell you this it's fading it's fading because Christ is seated and in session it's fading and angels will not have this prominent role in the world to come Remember what the passage says. Now, it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come. It's implying they're not going to have that role in this eschaton that we've talked about. In this rule and reign of Christ, he has earned that role back for mankind. They had a prominent and important role in the past world. And they have a role in this present world, but it is fading. Now, The central point of the Hebrews 2 passage. That's all background. It's important background. The central point. Turn back to Hebrews 2. I want you to see this. It's important that you see this. The Hebrews preacher is taking his people to Christ as the one who restored dominion. He's taking his people to a place where they see that Christ is the one that Psalm 8 was about. Christ is the alpha man. He is the true human, capital T. He is the ideal man. Look at verses 7 and 9 and the connection. Verse 7, right from Psalm number 8. You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything, everything in subjection under his feet. If all we had was Psalm 8, we would read that and think he's talking about us. I told you, there is some application for us. There's even application for unbelievers as they exercise dominion over their pets or their yard or their checking account. It has some application, but let's see where he takes it. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, oh, he's talking about Jesus. He left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but watch verse 9. We see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels. Oh, Psalm number 8 is about Jesus, namely Jesus. He's crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. This passage is about Jesus. He's the one that's made a little lower than the angel's. He's the one crowned with glory and honor, and he's the one who has everything in subjection to him. And this all happened by and because the suffering of death, as he says. That's how it happened. It was earned through the work of the cross. He's showing his people that Christ fixed the unfixable problem. He redeemed dominion. It's about Christ. We don't read Psalm 8 and then say, yeah, look at us. We read Psalm 8 and say, yeah, look at him. He did what we couldn't do. We proved it or and or, remember? One watery ordeal after another. We prove or and or that we need a rescue from someone and something outside of us. And that's what Christ did. He fixed the unfixable problem. Paul connects this language and this thought by referring to Christ as the new Adam. 
In light of this watery ordeal, this pattern that we've looked at, we could also say, yes, he's a new Adam and he's a better Noah. He's a better Moses. He's a better Joshua. He'll not lie drunk and naked in his tent, Noah. Man, he is the new and better Adam. The new and better Moses. The new and better Joshua. I like how Paul connects it to a new Adam. It opens the doors for us to really see Christ for what he's done. Turn to Matthew chapter 4. I read the fall of man in chapter 3 of Genesis on purpose. Because I want you to see this. Listen to what happens right in front of chapter 4. As you're turning there, I want you to see the connections. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. Jesus is going to go through the watery ordeal. And like every other man has proved that we go south in hours or days afterward, Let's watch what he does. He goes through the watery ordeal. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? And Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it's fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And he consented, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were open to him. He saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove, coming to rest on him, and behold, a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son. We could add a better Adam, a better Noah, a better Moses, a better Joshua, in whom I am well pleased. Watch how he handles the temptation. Think of Genesis chapter 3 in tension with this. And Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, the same one that tempted Eve, the same one that tempted Adam. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was, say it in a southern way, hungry. He was hungry. He wasn't living in a garden with trees full of fruit hanging down to the ground. Remember I said Adam and Eve, they weren't even hungry. Jesus was fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, and the tempter, the same one that came to the old Adam, comes to him and says to him, if you're the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. And he answered, nah. I think I've said this once before, but I just, I'm going to say it again. My mom's going to be mad at me, and I think Corey Petzl is probably going to be mad at me. He says, up yours, Satan. Up yours, When you see how this Adam handles temptation, you just have to cheer. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Does that make you just want to cheer? You look at the old Adam, not even hungry. Sure. You look at the new Adam, hadn't had a bite in 40 days. Here you go. He says, no, sir. No, sir. I'm the new and better and perfect Adam. Then the devil says, man, shucks, took him by the Holy Spirit, took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, here's another try. If you're the son of God, throw yourself down for it's written, he will command his angels concerning you and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. And he said to him, all hungry, again, it's written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. 
Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give to you if you fall down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it's written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him and behold, angels show up ministering to him. And you have got to enjoy that picture from Matthew chapter 4, that sort of mulligan on the garden where the new and better and perfect Adam does what man has proven that we can't do. We have design and dominion problems and he, right after the watery ordeal, see the same pattern, does it differently. That's got to make you enjoy Jesus. If that doesn't make you enjoy Jesus, I really have concerns if, if you even know him. If you're like, yawn, you're missing the marrow of the gospel. This is the good news. Massive dots are connected in this. He does what no other man could do. He doesn't partake, even when he's starving. He doesn't fail where every other has failed. And he restored dominion through the suffering of death. And the sinless life that went with that death. Christ fixed man's dominion problem forevermore. And he brought salvation to the world. If you read your Old Testaments, if you, or your New Testaments, if you're familiar with this language of salvation for the world, that's what this is speaking of here. It's talking about a corporate rescue. The world now has a hope because of what he did. He brought salvation to the world through this. John, whenever he sees Jesus for the first time, John the Baptist, he says, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This isn't about universalism, about everyone going to heaven. This is about the world has a recreative hope now. We have a rescuer a redeemer. He's redeemed dominion and given us a corporate hope, a corporate rescue for all of creation. There's hope for humanity now. He made a way for man to walk back in our original design in the dominion that we were meant for. Turn to Matthew chapter 28. Now, <clears throat> with a new and better Adam comes a new and better mandate. Man, there's some dots connected up in here. I'm telling you, there's some serious ones. With a new and better Adam comes a new and better mandate. Listen to this. Chapter 28, verse 18. Keep the cultural mandates in view. Genesis 9, Genesis 1. And Jesus came to them. Let's start in verse 16, just so we know it's a motley crew, not an impressive bunch. He comes to the 11 disciples, or now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I earned it through the suffering of death. I got your authority back. And then he says, now, 
Go therefore. Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That is our cultural mandate. We have a new and better Adam. We have a new and better mandate now. You read the cultural mandate of Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 9, you think, man, i got to have a bunch of babies. i got to be fruitful multiply. Is that true? Man, yeah, have a bunch of kids. But for those in Christ, it's bigger than that. Man, have a bunch of kids and go make disciples, baptize, teach them to observe. That's our mandate. We have a new and better Adam. We have a new and better mandate. Be fruitful and multiply. Subdue the earth with the gospel. You see that? Now, the implications of dominion restored. We, this new people, born through this new work, through this new and perfect Adam, have a new mandate and their implications for what our dominion or what dominion restored looks like. Here's the first one. We are to subdue the earth with the gospel. Things progressively come under his control through the gospel advancing. City councils. Why have we not prayed for our city council for the last eight years? <laughs> Why wouldn't we? Why wouldn't we pray for our state and our country? Why wouldn't we pray for our neighborhood? Because that's what the cultural mandate is for us. That's what our great commission is. Neighborhoods, our workspaces, our families, our city councils, our doctor's offices, our marriages, our bank accounts, our schedules, even, yes, our eating habits. They all come under his dominion now. They all come under his control. Through the work of the gospel, invading every one of those issues. See that? It's not some special plan. It's the gospel. When gospel invades your marriage, now there's hope. When the gospel influences how you eat, there's nothing wrong with Jenny Craig and Weight Watchers and all these other things. Nothing wrong with that. But when the gospel affects how you even view food, then we're getting somewhere. Then it's not about skinny jeans. Then it's about his glory. You see the difference? Nothing wrong with skinny jeans. But it's a weak, sad motive. When these things come under dominion, the earth is subdued with the gospel. So the work of missions and the work of raising up children in the faith is doing the work of our cultural mandate. You see that? As a recreated people? It's our cultural mandate. It's exercising dominion. The mandate for us isn't just about having babies, but raising up God's people and reaching those not yet reached. The scope is broader than the first mandate. And it's more developed. It sees a bigger picture. Secondly, second implication of dominion restored is that our authority is restored. If you're still there in that Matthew 28 passage, look at verse 18. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given 
to me. He takes authority to a whole nother level. You see that? Adam initially had authority on earth. And Jesus says, you know what? Not only did I redeem that authority, I also got the authority in heaven. All authority has been given me. And what does he do next? He gives it to 11 motley dudes. I earned this authority. I won it through the suffering of death. And now I'm giving it to you to go, to baptize, to make disciples, to teach. We're walking in his authority now. In the world to come, the authority that angels had in the Old Testament is transferred to Christ. And now those who are in Christ have appropriated through his work that authority. We have that sort of authority now. The authority wasn't passed to angels. Notice, he's talking to 11 dudes. Fishermen and tax collectors. Boneheads. Like us. And he says, this authority that I won, I'm not giving it to Gabriel. Not giving it to any of these other angels, cherubim, seraphim, any of these guys. I'm giving it to the likes of you. Like it was given to you in the first place. You're getting it back. That's a scandal. This authority I give to you. Here's a little glimpse of that. You don't need to turn there, but you may jot this down. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare to go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Paul's writing to the church in Corinth because they're they're suing each other. And they're taking their lawsuits before unbelievers. And he's like, man, that just doesn't even make sense. Why can't you guys figure that out between yourselves? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? He's talking about in the world to come. And listen what else he says in the world to come. And if this world's to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? You see that? It's crazy. Gabriel might be standing before you someday. Now, Gabriel, you watch it, buddy. Because things are going to be put back in order in the world to come. That authority has been given us, not angels. Cherubim don't have to guard the garden anymore. They're out of a job. And we're put back in charge of the garden. That's the scandal of the gospel. Here's the third thing. And this is related. The first was subduing the earth. With the gospel, that's the first implication. The second is the authority is restored. And the third, creation is under our feet again. Now you might say, well, it looks like it is right now, but you and I both know it's not. Remember, it's one step forward, two steps back. Our whole world is an issue of decay. You may have dominion over your desk and actually put it in order, but give it a week or two. Right? Right? But through the work of Christ, creation is placed under our feet again. I'm going to give you these references. If you'd like to turn there, you can, but you'll have to be quick. I'm not in a hurry. I just don't want to wait on you. Isaiah chapter 11. Listen to this passage. Prophetic passage about the world to come. Listen to it. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb... Okay, that's not like our world. 
because wolves eat lambs. We all know the cartoon. I mean, Wiley Coyote and those guys, they don't play. They're eating stuff. I mean, they're not laying and hanging out with wee lambs. But in the world to come, they will. And the leopard shall lie down with the young goat. <laughs> what? Leopard these days would eat the young goat. And the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together. They're all hanging out together. Fat calves and lions. Man, that's crazy. And a little child shall lead them. Ruby June. Ruby June will lead them around. Come here, Ruby. Ruby's leading around. Come here, lions. Come here. And they're, yes, yes, ma'am. It's crazy to think about. The cow and the bear shall graze. The young shall lie down, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like an ox. That'll be a sight to behold. Now, this is poetic, so don't get crazy about it. I'm glory and new heavens and new earth. I'm going to see a lion eating hay. It's figurative about dominion restored. Listen to this. The nursing child, the picture of helplessness. The nursing child, child shall play over the whole of the cobra. Man, dominion restored right there, boy. Things are put back in their place. Children are playing over the whole of the cobra. And the weaned child shall put his hand in the adder's den. You know, the adders from Raiders of the Lost Ark. You know, yeah, run for your life. The child, it's an adder. That's cool, you know, poison snake. Because things are back in order. This is imagery of dominion restored. Here's another passage. Psalm 91, verse 9. Because you've made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High, who is my refuge, no evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague shall come near your tent. Now listen to this next passage. It will be familiar to you if you paid attention to what Satan said to Jesus. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. You think the devil's not aware of dominion issues? He quoted this passage, and listen to what it says next. You will tread on the lion and the adder. The young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. That's dominion restored. That's imagery of what has been earned and achieved in the person and work of Christ. Here's the next passage. Mark chapter 16. This passage is the Mark version of our cultural mandate. Listen to it. It's all making sense now. <laughs> it's crazy because I'm I, for years I've avoided this passage and now I'm looking at it seeing dots connecting and going, oh yeah, now I get it. Listen, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes his baptized will be saved. Whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up serpents with their hands. And if they drink any deadly poison, poison, it won't hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. Dominion restored. Reading passages like that, they're just making sense now. One more to show you. Acts chapter 28. This one's kind of funny. 
Another one that would have been inexplicable before today. Listen to chapter 28 of Acts. This is Paul. After we were brought safely through, we then learned that the island was called Malta. Okay, they go through, they have a shipwreck, and they end up on the island of Malta. The native people of Malta showed us unusual kindness. For they kindled a fire and welcomed us all because it had begun to rain and was cold. When Paul had gathered a bundle bundle of sticks, it's good to see that Paul's on the team helping out around the campsite. When Paul gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. The language is funny to me. He fastened like he stuck. And he's hanging from Paul's hand. And the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand. And they say to one another, Ooh-wee, no doubt this man is a murderer. Though he's escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. Looked like God brought this snake out of the, out of the woods there, out of the, the limbs to bite him. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. The reason they said he's a god is because homeboy is walking in dominion. He's walking in dominion that was earned through the suffering death of Christ. And even snakes don't bother him. Fastened to his hand, he shakes it off in the fire and goes about his business eating dinner. They're watching him, expecting him to croak. But no misfortune befalls him because he's walking in dominion earned. Now, the application is brief. For those who are in Christ, this is where the Hebrews writer is taking us and taking the Hebrews people, where God is taking us through the Hebrews writer. For those who are in Christ, we walk in a restored new world order. Like, man, that sounds kind of creepy, like almost, uh, that's crazy. That's what the Hebrews writer is saying. They're likely in Rome hearing this message under the heavy hand of Rome. Maybe their dads and moms had been crucified or burned as torches at the Colosseum. And he's showing them, no, you're walking in a new realm. You're walking in a new dominion. You're walking in a new world order. The point for us is that our marriages, our money, even our health are subdued. And they come back into our dominion because they've come into his dominion. I was thinking about the irony that here we are on New Year's Day considering this passage. I couldn't have designed the timing of it any better. But what do most people do the first part of the year? They set some sort of New Year's resolution. I usually do it every year. We haven't done this yet, but as a family, oftentimes in the past, we've talked through what we want to accomplish or tackle in the new year. What we're doing there is we're saying, what do we want to bring under our dominion? That's what we're doing. Whether it's weight or money or time or hobbies or what you read. You know, think of all the things that people typically do as a New Year's resolution. That's man's desire to bring things back under dominion. That's a good desire. 
For those who are in Christ, though, make it about worship and make it about walking in His dominion. Whatever that resolve is, whatever that goal is, whatever that plan is for 2012, make it a worship issue. Because the reality is we don't have to be enslaved to dysfunction anymore. We don't have to be enslaved to defeat anymore. Because we're walking with the victor who's earned dominion for us. We don't have to be stuck in malfunction. Now, I know as well as you do that those things year by year, you may have had resolutions that you've set so many times, you're like, I'm not going to set that one again just because it's a big disappointment. Tired of, tired of failing. Realize when you do that, it may not happen this year, but it might happen the next. It might happen the next as all things are brought into subjection to Him under your feet. I encourage you, do resolve. Do make some plans for 2012, but do it as an act of worship. Walking in dominion. I'll give you a little teaser for next week. If you want to turn to John chapter 6 for our Lord's Supper time. As you're turning there, I'll give you the teaser for next week. And it may be the question that you're thinking on right now. If everything's been put in subjection to Him, and if those who are in Him by His work also walk in dominion with the earth under our feet, subduing, why then do we still see areas not only in our workplace or our neighborhood or our community or our families, but even in our own lives where we don't, don't see dominion exercised? Why, who, why people who really love Jesus and want to enjoy Him and make much of Him and be salty, bright, and aromatic, do we still experience places where we don't yet see dominion? Why do we have people that might be sick and they're not healed when we pray for them? Why might if I go out and make a fire this afternoon and get bit by a rattlesnake, might it actually hurt me? Next week we're going to consider that. It's hopefully going to resolve that question for you. And it's going to deal with what we can see. While we don't see necessarily dominion in every place, it will deal with what we can see and what's in store for the world to come. Key phrase, for the world to come. Now, John chapter 6 is an appropriate place, I feel like, for us to go in light of this sermon for the supper. I'm going to read a good, a good portion of the chapter and then we'll take the supper together. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. The signs he's doing is he's healing people. He's exercising dominion. Jesus went up on the mountain and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii wouldn't buy enough bread for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, though, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there's a boy over here who has five barley loaves and two fish. 
But what are they for so many? I paid attention in math class, and that's not going to work. Five barley loaves, two fish, and 5,000 people? I know that's not going to work. And Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. And Jesus took the loaves. And when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up. And they filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. This is a picture of dominion over math. He's exercising dominion over math. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who's come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they'd rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat. He's exercising here dominion over gravity. He owns math. He owns gravity. They see him walking on the water and they're frightened. And they said to him, but he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat and watch what happens next. And immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. There he's exercising dominion even over time and space. He's showing off. He's showing off for him right here. He's saying, I'm going to rescue your dominion issues. I own math and barley loaves, and fishes, and the numbers of people that can feed. I own that. I own wind, and waves, and water, and gravity, and density. I own even time and space. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum, seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you're seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not labor for food that perishes. Labor instead, that's implied, for the food that endures to eternal life. He's about to tell you what that food is. Which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, Here's the labor that we're to labor for. Here's the food that endures to eternal life. This is the definite article, work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, this is funny, then what sign do you do? He's healed people. He's turned these loaves and fishes to feed 5,000 people. He's walked on the water. 
He's defied time and space, and they say, What sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it's written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus then said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. Speaking of himself. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Corporate hope, corporate rescue, corporate remedy in and through and only by Christ. And they said to him, the thing that I want us to say as we take the supper this morning, Sir, give us this bread always. Let's have our supper together. I want you all to say this with me. I'm going to say it, and then I'm going to let you say it with me. Sir, give us this bread always. Let's say it together. Sir, give us this bread always. Let's take and eat. As we take the cup, let's enjoy and remember that this dominion that was earned and restored was through the suffering of death. That's what this cup reminds us of each week. That it was an expensive price paid with blood. Let's take and drink together. What I'm hoping for this morning on the first day of the year is that we just had a few minutes together to really enjoy Jesus. Um, To me right now, as we're seeing how great our God is, I'm thinking, some people believe that Adam and Eve sinned on Sunday of the creation week. We don't know that for sure, but it wouldn't surprise me. I mean, the same chapter, Noah is naked and drunk in his tent. The same chapter, the cultural mandate, the second casting. The really, one of the first scenes that you see when the nation of Israel crosses over the Red Sea is them getting their gold together and making a golden calf and dancing around and worshiping it. It wouldn't surprise me if it was Sunday. When I see that, I see myself in that. I see you in that. I know you. (laughs) I know me too. I mean, this is not something that I'm free of. I see the heartbreaking, tragic problem, man. Look at them going into the new land, the promised land. They crossed over the Jordan. They fit the battle of Jericho. That went well. But how'd the next battle go? Achan defied God's command and buried some stuff in his tent and they got their behinds handed to him. It's the human problem. I'm hoping today you enjoyed for a moment, intensely enjoyed for the first few moments in the first morning of the first day of the year, enjoyed that Jesus did what every other man proved we couldn't do. God showed us over and over and over again how much we needed a rescuer. And then he shows Christ do it well on an empty stomach, mind you. A seriously empty stomach. If this morning you cheered for Jesus, man, we got it. We got the job done this morning. I hope you cheered for Jesus and realized this morning it may be the first thoughts you've ever had of a new world for you. Of a world of dominion, walking in his dominion. That's the part two of part A being that he earned it for us through the suffering of death.
He did what we couldn't do. I hope you enjoyed that this morning. I want to encourage you to. This sermon may be worth listening to a couple times. It might be. I encourage you as small group shepherds or friends or brothers, sisters, family members, whoever of folks who aren't here, encourage them to go listen to this sermon because next week is going to be dependent on this one. I feel like every year God has given us something on our radar, something to focus on. We have the year of the shepherd. We have the year of obedience. It's not like other years you don't do those things, but they were sort of a special focus that year. And I feel like timing-wise, this is the year of dominion where we walk in his deliverance and we walk in his dominion and we walk in the design that he restored for us. Next week, we're going to deal with those areas of your life or areas in your workplace or your family or even in your own flesh where you may see, man, I know that's true, but I just don't see it taking place right here. We all have those areas. We're going to deal with that next week. All right, y'all stand and I'll dismiss you. God, thank you so much for our time together this morning. We are so thankful for a redeemer, a rescuer, for corporate hope, corporate rescue, hope for the world and the person and work of Christ. Lord, we enjoyed this morning Christ doing what we couldn't do. We enjoyed this morning where he's tempted but does not sin when he's hungry. You just show us how much better he is than the best of us. Lord, we see ourselves in that pattern of failure and pattern of fall. We're thankful that you provided a new and righteous man, an alpha man that we can walk in, that we can enjoy, that we can worship as we go about this year. We commit this year to you as a year of dominion where we walk in the dominion earned by Christ. Thankful for restored design thankful that the earth is back under our feet you are a good god and we love you so much christ's name we pray amen thanks y'all